Namaste and in La Catch and welcome to this episode of One World in a New World. I'm your host, Zen Benefiel, and this week's guest is Laura Donnelly. Um, I love the name. My dear sister's named Laura, so there's a, some initial connection there. Well, this Laura is an entrepreneur, an author, a podcast host, a choreographer for dance and life. She's also a featured contributor for Biz Catalyst 360, and we actually met through that group originally. And she is a creator and producer of the Healing Path Conversations. Uh, she's Her business is called Dancing with Ease, Body Brain Balance, and she is a graduate of the University of Arizona with an MFA in dance, pedagogy, and uh, production. So, and she's also an academic administrator. So she's got a wealth of experience and knowledge and she's like me, she's a bit weird too. So let's dive in. Laura, glad to have you here. Thank you. Thank you, Zen. It's so always so joyful when we can get together and speak and uh, also, you know, sharing comments on posts that we find. I It's really opens my mind to new ideas. And um, yeah, a little bit weird. Yes, I did so many different things because I kind of got bored with whatever I was doing and it was time for the next adventure, you know. And uh, that's and an I, amazing I, journey to have and be willing to have. <clears throat> yeah, in the beginning, I was a little uh, frustrated when I started out as a dancer. You know, my, my idea was I was going to find a company and the director would. Uh, nurture me and uh, give me roles and parts that would expand my dancing abilities and, uh, you know, kind of just take care of me as a dancer in the... Mm -hmm. uh, now that I'm looking back on it today, <laughs> I realize I was that person. I had to do that for myself. Right. Find the... And whether it's a role or a job or an experience... Uh, that would teach me things I needed to know or expand the way I looked at the world. At one time, I, I did a job. I was a worked for a stock photographer. I, I mean, a stock photography agency. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and I spent hours looking at little tiny slides. But the whole thing from dance, composition, the slide frame was the same as the stage. Were the elements balanced? Were they harmonious? Did they uh, communicate the idea? It, and so at the time, I didn't really even realize it was like another, it was, it's not the same thing, right? But it's beside the thing that was my main thing. And mm -hmm. it was a different area of development. There's often kind of parallel uh, accoutrements, if you will, that, that join us. Now, speaking of accoutrements, in, in your younger years, were were there some indicators that of where you were wanting to take? Because it, you know, a dancer is like that energy that has to have been present when you were younger, and, and being able to, uh, I suspect, kind of create your own scenes, if you will, whether it was in your mind or, or in the play. What kinds of things happen, and, and how did you first connect with your ability to to do that? Now that you've looked back and and wondered, okay, how did I, you know, initially find it? Because I think we 
all do that. We all have this almost constant retrospective, not that we're stuck in the past, although that's the temptation, right? There's still this um, constant review. When, and we pick up insights with each one, it seems. So how did you find your way and, and what was it like? Well, like I said, I was pretty frustrated early on in my career. I kind of was, uh, I probably resisted it quite a bit without realizing I was resisting. Mm -hmm. um, my dad was really creative. So was my mom. So was his sister. Uh, so creativity. So the gene pool was good. The gene pool was good. Uh, right along there with the multiple generations of perfectionism that also came through. Well, there's the nurture, right? It's yeah. like, uh, so, so you were set up with some interesting challenges. Yeah. And and my dad was a singer and my mom was a singer and a dancer. And they had met uh, on tour. And, and so they always were singing around the house. I thought musicals were real life. You know, we would go and watch. Because they were. They were. For you. And me and my life. Right. We would sing around the house and... Um, and so this uh, this energy of um, a beginning, a middle, and an end, right? Like in a mm -hmm. musical, was, all, was always part of, of what was going on. And um, when I was nine, somebody came and picked us up at school, my brother and me, which was odd. Uh, we usually walked home. Mm -hmm. And when I got out of that car, it was probably a friend of the family. I don't really, you know, I don't even really remember who it was at this point. And uh, I, I stepped on the, her, the sidewalk that led to the front door to my house. And I had felt this wave of energy. And the concept that came with the wave was nothing will ever be the same again. Mm. And... Um, like, you know, that's when you're nine. And kind you of made you think, home. what am I going to find? Right. Like this over, yeah. Like, yeah. what is this? So we went in and my we had a studio in the house. Okay. Besides everything else, my mom taught dancing in the house. So we had this huge studio and right. we could put on shows in the studio, you know, roller skate in the studio. It was, it was a great place. Wow. But somebody else was teaching the class. And then there were the parents of the people who were in that class you know, and there, and I'm like, okay, like, where's my mom? Well, that fell down at work and she had to go to the hospital, but everything's going to be okay. Can I just tell you, don't tell that to your kids. Unless you qualify it. Something has happened and things are going to be different, but they will also be okay. So that you start to expand this that you can be okay through difficult times. Mm -hmm. People, I know now that the adults didn't know what to do. They didn't know what to say. They didn't know how to deal. Well, that day we moved into my grandma's house. And so my little kid brain is like, this is not gonna be okay. This is not right. But nobody would tell me anything. So uh, what had happened is my dad had uh, trying to take care of other people. He was, he did window designs in mm -hmm. the department store and he had closed the window 
in the entryway, which was like probably four feet or three feet or something. And he was hanging draperies and stuff. And he closed the door so that no kid came in and got hurt if something fell off the ladder. But right. there was no airflow in the window. And yeah, so he's up on the ladder. He got lightheaded bef before he knew it and he fell and he, he hit his temple. And uh, gone. It took a few days. They yeah. and and so you know and so so this was a defining moment in my life. And part of what I did is I I got nearsighted pretty quickly, and I shut down access to that information that had told me this bad thing was happening <laughs> because I. I didn't know how to deal with it and I didn't know how, you know, and it gave me bad news. Well, it was gave me news to try and prepare me and to try and protect me. Yeah. And, you know, when you have those kinds of things happen, how do you deal with it? There's no manual, right? There's this open, raw place that people, especially those that love you, are attempting to either assuage or inform you just enough so that you can step through it because the truth is tough to swallow or at least they think that a young child can't handle the truth i don't know that that's the best thing and, and what did you find from that and well, here's what i think i'm gonna, just going to say this because talking to you all these things that kind of okay that kind of float in, around in my peripheral thing they uh -huh they come together and i'm going to say to you what that wave was and i i talk about it as a wave like water it was all the emotions of everybody who was in my house whether they were still there like when they came and got my mom to go to the hospital you know she had huge emotion sure the people who were her friends because it was mostly her friends whose kids took dancing they they were left responsible with no warning. The girl who was teaching the class was a young, young dancer, older than the kids in the class, but not ready for that responsibility. And mm -hmm. then all of that energy. So what I can tell you now is like, wow, man, I got that flood. That flooded me. Right. It reminds me of, of um, uh, Maslow, not Maslow, Massey and the significant emotional events and how now he doesn't go into this but those impactful um it's like punch in the gut kind of moments right and, and not necessarily in a bad way but there's this energy explosion that happens that that's not quite comfortable and and yet there's also like you were talking about this energy of others and we don't we haven't we don't have the technology to measure this yet however when you have that kind of significant emotional event in the moment, that waveform, for lack of a better, as you called it, a wave, is there energetically. And those who are sensitive to it will feel it in some way. And, and these kinds of things, and, and it just, it doesn't dissipate. It does settle right that as time goes and it builds the layers uh, over the years and things like that however a sensitive such as you and and others who have that 
proclivity. Um, as uncomfortable it is, as it is initially, you're going to feel that. Um, I, I did as well as a kid, so I, that I know I can relate to that, which is kind of, I think, where we began in our conversations of recognizing our empathic consistencies, right? And in the different ways that we express that. And like the comment you made earlier about a post that was on LinkedIn and explaining, you know, the how comes before the do. And it, the how is more important than what we're doing. And that reflection of, you know, when you drill down a little bit more in it, the energy in the how, because of your care and compassion in what you're doing, will affect what you do. It'll even make choices for you as to what you do because of how you live. Now, in that process, kind of went off on a tangent there, bringing it back in that evolution of consciousness that you were going through, what were the kinds of things that you noticed in the moment and then how you reflected on that as time moved on? I think in the moment, all I could do was react. I, I didn't really have anybody to talk to about this. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any, we had no knowledge that anybody else felt any differently than I, than mm -hmm. I felt. The event was one thing. It's the sensations that were going along with it. That was the... Well, and then, and then what I did with the sensations. And, right. and it's really taken me... Uh, so about the last four or five years to understand that I can have a, a wave of uh, feeling which contains information splash over me and pass through me. In as a child, I just caught it, right, and held it, and it it locked in my throat. And uh, ever after that, when I sang, I was I sang sharp because mm. of the tension in my vocal cords. And uh, I sounded like Minnie Mouse. <laughs> and I was, I think, I was always slightly anxious because a lot of what I had taken was other people's fear. It wasn't sure. my fear. It, but and you didn't recognize it at the time. It was just that sensation without definition. Right. And it locked into what would be any, any child's normal fear when mm -hmm. things are unusual. You know, who, why did, why did my neighbor pick me up? She never picks me up at school, you know? Um, but there was a place in me that this could latch onto. And then I carried it. Now a very, very interesting thing that my mom said to me later after I was grown up is that, uh, from the time she was a tiny child, she had had an unreasonable fear of just about everything. Hmm. And in spite of it, she went away to college and she studied in Chicago and she toured in a, in a dance company. And she, I mean, she did all these things. I said, how did you do them? She said, I just did them. Okay. Okay. This is part of my heritage. It, stuff is here. We just keep going. That's mm -hmm. So then she said, she said, even after I got married, I thought when I got married, this would go away. It did not go away. She said, if your dad was working late, I sat in the kitchen. I shut 
all the doors and windows in the house and I shut all the doors to the kitchen and I had every light on in the house and I waited for him to come home. Wow. I know. This did not resonate with me for who my mom was. I mean, I didn't understand this because mm -hmm. my, my main memories of her are as a single parent, earning all the money, paying off the house, sending my brother and I to college. I mean, like... Right. Now, it brings up a question. Okay, so was this um, her own empathy and sensitivity that she was picking up on others around because you know we can be really sensitive and, and pick things up from long distance as well is that what was happening that she didn't recognize and yet still moved beyond that to get stuff done right yeah. to live her life i would say yes because like i said like like in the last year i i wrote this chapter about Mm -hmm. boundaries for empaths because i think well i think it's an interesting subject <laughs> well yeah i mean and, and your piece in the the book behind you the um, joy on demand and your piece of living in joy is an empathic guide to uh, to healthy joy or you know I, I hope i got that um those kinds of recognitions and capacity that we develop to view and share, which is even greater than the experience of it, because then you've got the, as we were talking earlier, uh, the reflection. Well, and, see, and so I think, like, like you said this, I think that a lot of the people in my family were gifted, sensitive, empathetic, and had no idea how to deal with it. Well, at that time, I mean, those kinds of skill sets, right? weren't real welcome right and see, and see like my grandpa and my grandma they were my grandpa was born in 1895 grandma was born in 1898 um and so you know so suddenly i'm like oh well i have a lot more compassion for them now and what they did is they figured out how to fit mm -hmm. into, we, I, we, I grew up in the midwest It's good. It's full of good people, but they are on a track. <laughs> oh, yep. Grew up there. Yeah. Um, exactly what you're thinking. Indiana didn't want me. And and if you aren't on, the, and for them, it was dangerous not to be on this track. Oh, yeah. And, and the kids today, I, I hear in a lot of my guests that as they were growing up with the sensitivities, all they wanted to do was fit in. And now there's a much more authentic place in that recognition of what kids want to do where it wasn't really considered back in grandma and grandpa's day or, or even in our parents' day. And, well, and a lot of things that my mom tried to steer me away from, she tried to steer me away from in order to keep me safe. Yeah. And, and I understand this because also this place where we grew up in the Midwest, it wasn't that long ago that it was a very difficult and challenging environment to live in mm -hmm. and dangerous. I mean, snakes and scorpions and tornadoes and freezing cold and super hot in the summer. I mean, it's, it's an, ex uh, it's an environment of extremes and I do. It's where we have our best growth, right? 
Well, and I do have in my heart a, uh, what is it? Uh, an admiration and appreciation of the power of the extremes of nature. Yeah. I love, I love it, even though as a human, they can wipe me out, mm -hmm. you know, in, in an instant. And it's not personal, you know, the, the giant storm has so much energy and power and beauty and it can level my house in an instant and, but it's not leveling my house. Right. It's just sweeping across the planet. So, so yes. So, so then what my mom told me about this fear and I, uh, she had some ideas of what happened and whatever, but she said the fear was lifted off of her when my dad died. What I know now is I had taken it. Mm. When that wave came, this was, you know, for her, this was the worst possible thing that could happen other than losing a child. Right. And that all that emotion just went, and I caught it. And I didn't really even think of this till I was probably in my 30s or 40s when I was starting to let go of what wasn't mine. Mm -hmm. And this is what I think uh, really sensitive and empathetic people do is that they gather a lot of energy and ideas and feelings. And they think it's about them first. They think it's theirs. They can't, they yeah. can't separate. This is me. And this is uh, for me, like, this is me. And this is my feeling. And this is my mom. And this is her feeling. No, they were like, right. Well, we've like, got no, we haven't been taught. We have not been taught how to distinguish. Between so we things. feel everything. We interpret it as us because it's, we're feeling it, right? Well, and often we start this as children mm -hmm. and at this place as children where, where we think we are the creator of the universe, which we are in a way, but we also think we're responsible for More so than what we might imagine. Yes. And so, so the next thing that happened is I suddenly, all of the things that were percolating in here, you know, genetically and uh, environmentally about perfectionism, mm -hmm. those all came together. And I'm like, if I make ever another mistake, they who came and took my dad will come and take my mom. Yeah, I'm nine. I'm mm, nine. Yeah. Perfect child logic for nine. Yeah, because now you're, yeah, you're responsible for everything at that point. Or at least this is kind of how we feel. Yeah. And so, so the journey we talked about this too, the metaphor of the journey. It, mm -hmm. And I live out here where there's hardly any people in the middle of Kansas and th there's many roads and everyone must have a car. Uh, you get, you get to drive at 14. <laughs> so cool. <laughs> Independence, freedom. And as soon as you can pay for your own car, pretty much you can have your own car. Right. When I was growing up, thank God insurance was not so horrendous as it is now, but, um, but this, Ability to move down the road is also a metaphor that has been in my psyche for ages as, as the, the journey that, that really, for me, life is a journey. And these things, people are like, oh, that's so terrible that your dad died. And I'm like, well, it was pretty bad. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, 
it was absolutely normal because we didn't know anything else. Right. And I do know too that that I had a lot more freedom and independence because my mom needed help and support. So she couldn't keep me as safe as she and my dad had started to keep me, which I'm sure I would have had tremendous rebellion uh, from that. <laughs> you know, but, but, you know, like I got to do this. As soon as I was 14, I could drive my brother places because she didn't have time to take him there. And so it, so there, so for me, there were good things. Yeah, there were advantages that came with it. And, and we kept going. And then, then after time, you know, over time, I started to unravel these pieces and, and to realize that almost everywhere I went, I tried to help people because I felt their pain. And I didn't know any way to deal with the pain inside of me other than to fix them because somehow I didn't know that it was coming from them, like flowing from right. them. But I couldn't separate it and I couldn't let theirs just pass me by. And I hadn't gotten to the understanding that came in the probably last four or five years for me that everybody is on their own path and it's not my job to prevent their challenges. Mm -hmm. I, I can witness and if if they ask i can say this is the light shining on the path this is the path that i took that got me out of this turmoil you seem to be feeling i can hold the light up over here if you choose to walk on this path but if you choose to keep going the path you're going on then I trust that is the learning that your soul needs. Mm -hmm. But as a child, I didn't have the, I would tell you, inner strength to allow other people to suffer. Hmm. It's tough for all of us or any of us to, to see someone suffering in, in, from my perspective. Now, I would wonder have you made the correlation between this mm, lineage of <laughs> stuff, right? And the dance, the choreography, oh, the, the arrangement of energies doing things that you actually then had control of. Um, it, there is yes there is a lot to this and and um well i mean there's the major metaphor in that in in my opinion and um, the uh, well and the dance of life exactly and when you uh and where i am now is is you know in the dance of life i cannot control what comes at me hmm. i simply can control my response mm -hmm. and and on stage, uh, in the beginning, I was a ballet dancer. Okay, so that fits right in the whole perfectionism. Sure. And, um, yeah, and no tulips with those tiptoes. Yeah. And when I when I got a little bit older, then then modern dance was becoming more of a thing. And so then I I did point dancing and I did barefoot dancing, 
oh, there we are again at the two extremes. Mm. Like this place I grew up, ballet is all up, 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 and modern right. is all down, 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 down. Right. And so then I'm like, okay, I'm in the middle. <laughs> what am I going to do? And I did start to develop my own style. And I started to do choreography in my own style, which was an attempt to bring these two things together. And, uh, and then I met the most wonderful uh, composer who did a huge amount of improvisation. And the interesting thing is, is like me, he had a very classical piano training. And then he expanded from there. And so he would play and I would dance. And um, I, I started to be more in the moment. Now, the truth is about even uh, strict choreography. What makes it alive is that the performer is in the moment doing mm -hmm. the movement. Even mm -hmm. though steps are prescribed, they will never do that series of steps with exactly the same energy inflection right it, and so that was for me like always a challenge because i in especially in ballet i was like get it right get it right get it right and my my teacher she's a russian lady uh she said all oh, don't dairy must live dance must live mm -hmm. and as you said i was pretty scared of living at, at in my early 20s i was pretty uh you know if if anything happens beyond my control, it's going to be bad. That, you know, that was a really, really deep belief based on this fact that like this thing came at me, I had no control over it and it was all bad news. So when I met this composer, his name was Philip Corner, or it is Philip Corner, he's still making music and doing things. Um, I had pretty much stopped dancing. I was pretty angry and pretty frustrated with the field. And he's like, you cannot stop. And I'm, and I just would break down in tears. You know, this, this is just so much not what I was about. It's not sacred. It's not <clears throat> life enhancing. It's, you know, half the people I know are starving themselves to death with anorexia or bulimia. I said, this is not, this is not it. You know, and he said, just come over to my studio. I'll play and you dance. And, and we must've done this for a few months. Mm -hmm. And, and. And then I started to trust, one, his music was like the world, making a space and an environment in which I could move freely and explore. And, uh, and then this changed my choreography entirely, changed how I made dances, it changed, uh, changed how I moved through the world, it changed how I look at things. And it, and loosened you up a bit. Yeah, we did loosen me up a bit. Yes, and it made me see. He also did a project called "A Piece of Reality," which is like an ongoing life project where he would just. Oh, yeah, that sounds interesting. Oh yeah, and and like one time he he showed me a picture and it was a cigarette butt in a puddle in the mud, surrounded by grass, and I said. Why did you take that picture? That's ugly. That's ugly. What did wait? He said, no, it's a piece of reality. I said, well, why didn't you pick up the cigarette button and throw it away? He said, it's a piece of reality. It's not something I have to fix. And I was like, oh, man. You know, then I'm like, 
what am I trying to fix that's not mine to fix? Mm-hmm. What am I <clears throat> trying to fix out here around me? Because really, I need to come to terms inside myself with all the things that I have no control over. And when I do that, just like like I had no control over what he would play, I just knew that he would play. Mm-hmm. And that it would make a safe, sound environment and I could be, I could be in that environment. And and if I just sat, maybe I would sometimes I just sat, sit and move my hand. And and if we were having a performance, you know, people would just watch what's happening next. Because when you're in the moment, there's so much space for other people to join you in the moment. Right. And 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 so now people are that you know. Like I know people who still go in the studio and they have the sheet music from the music they're playing. They have counted every note. They have, <laughs> and, um, and I'm, going, I'm going to the studio and I, you know, and, I, and I'm like, who's here today? Okay, well we're going to work on this section, and you are the people who are going to be in this section. Everybody who's not here today, their loss, your gain. And they're like, really? I said, well, you're here. I'm here. Why are That's we good. doing? Why are you going to wait for somebody else? You know, and uh, so, so that changed my life. And uh, well, you and make then, this, you make an interesting point as far as the the freedom, right? And you're talking about the prescriptive. Here's the score. Here's the notes. Here's the steps and the mechanistic way in which many approach that because of, of whatever reason right and yet the improv side of things is something that you know my wife and i who's a classically trained pianist from st petersburg she went through from a five-year-old through through college and, and can sight read amazingly still well we talk about improv because i'm a drummer I, that's my favorite is the improv, whether it's jazz, blues, aggressive rock, all those kinds of things are just so much fun. Why? Because I've learned how to let go. You know, you can't think about playing. You have to just play. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't need the skill set to play that you've developed through the reading, the writing, the arithmetic, and all those kinds of things, right? However, all there's... Practice. All that practice is in your body. Right. And so the muscle memory, then, once you can let go of that and allow the creative flow to take place, it's a whole different experience. And depending... Uh, this occurred to me a little bit ago that because I'm thinking of some of the days that, that I've played improv, you know, some days were better than others. Same guys, right? However, there's this... Um, and I, I wonder if it has to do with biorhythms, right? And whether those are all connecting, because those are that's one layer of how we can perceive, or at least become not not necessarily perceive, perceive, understand why we were in a particular place or why certain things behaved the way they did. 
on in that particular moment by observing those charts and graphs, right? <laughs> kind of playing them over. Um, is that a, too obsessive on how we reflect and, and admire life enough to be that deeply inquisitive? Well, here's what I tell people. I say, if you have a body, how can you ever be bored? It's always doing something. It's, it's an instrument. Thing. We haven't learned how to tune yet, let alone play in concert. Right. And it's always changing and mm -hmm. um, giving you new sensations, giving you new information. But also what you said, too, about that some days with your band, you would just be really in flow and it would just all come together. The same thing would happen in dance. And the bizarre thing that I started to notice is that after one of those performances, I didn't really remember any single step. Yeah. Just, you're not there. You're not there the same way. You're not yeah. there in the bean counter way. You're, yeah. you're actually more fully present. Your bean counterpart is working because you were on every beat that you needed to be on. Sure. But it wasn't dominant because when the bean counterpart becomes dominant it also brings the fear that i'm going to miss a beat and then of course you miss the beat mm -hmm. as soon as you think about it it happens yeah yes and and and, and sometimes a wrong note or a wrong step is not wrong that day in that moment but if you say uh-oh okay now you're two beats late for the next thing right and the and it cascade okay and it cascades down the hill in the wrong direction. So one of the things that that helped me to sift out these different emotions from different people and to let other people's emotions pass through, so that I knew what mine were and like oh that's really sad. <laughs> Whoa, that's really sad. Mm -hmm. But it's not mine was this ability that I that I call body brain balance, which is to begin to pay attention to my body so that I know it's uh, I know it's okay, so I know it's breathing cycle. So if I'm starting to get a little breathless, oh, that's a my body telling me you got pulled out of yourself, you got involved in some idea or a mm -hmm. combination and you're not breathing. So come come back to yourself. So then I, then I practice this coming back. And what I realize is when I come back to myself, I can go into that improvisational space, that flow at will. In the old days, I had to have my special uh, peanut butter, banana and honey sandwich before I went to the theater. And I had to have my magic pink socks that were I had had mm -hmm. since college. And I had to sit in this particular chair in this part of the room to put on my makeup i mean i had i had to develop well, and we create habits. so many rituals in our lives to empower us just to be present right and not that they're bad right the, the fact that we do them in order to do so it it gives us that ability to perform in, in some way the ritual can move us away from what I would tell you is our, uh, what is this? hang on a second. Um, mm. the, uh, no, that's not well, it's kind of a constrictive perspective of 
the control and management of time and space rather than the acquiescing to the flow that comes through you in it. Right. And I wanted to, I think, I think that there is maybe a little bit of physical anxiety because the body is born into the physical world. Mm -hmm. And I think this flow is the body can jump into the flow and participate, but I think the flow is beyond the physical. I would totally agree. It, personal experience, and, and the one thing that came to mind, this is going to sound really bizarre and, and way out there. Uh, I was visiting a friend um, over Christmas break and or Christmas time. Uh, this was right after my divorce. I was in Prescott, and Got up in the middle of the night, the, the bathroom was on the other side of the house. And this was an old farmhouse. So there was probably 60 feet or ish in between where I my room and the bathroom. And I opened the door up thinking, and this was, I don't know, two, three o'clock in the morning. And I'm just thinking naively, wow, I wish I was in front of the bathroom door. And when I went to bed, there was an archway in front of my door. I took two steps outside the door in a pitch black hallway and all of a sudden bang i'm hitting a wall and i'm like what the heck and i look around for a light switch flip it on and guess where i'm at it's bathroom door <laughs> yeah now how the hell did that happen right i i don't sleepwalk i'm not unconscious when i'm in that place that there's this it, it's not hypnagogic although it's close because you're not fully conscious you're kind of in between worlds you just recognize oh my body needs attention for a little bit <laughs> and yet you know i've never been able to repeat that however it did show me that those things are possible well and see i think that that there there is a little anxiety in the body that if it gives into this completely they're gonna lose it yeah it, yeah and so, so I was trying to find some other thing because I hate to say that we all have a basic anxiety, but this is probably from the limbic system. You know, I have to be alert. I have to take There's care of many layers of the fear of death, whether, <laughs> whether, right. And I know from going through experiences and journeys that there's many ego deaths in them as well and there's this and they're not just ego deaths they're actually you know you're releasing to a new level of consciousness we're talking about layers earlier there are multiple layers of consciousness that we inhabit and as you go into the inner experience and you begin to explore those each one of them requires you to let go of a kind of fear of death because there's a constriction right before you move through that you have to just release and then ascend into that next place same thing in person and in body as you're dancing right you've got to ascend or, or let go into that feeling and sensation of the music that allows you to flow with it not think about it because as soon as you think about like for music, as soon as you, as soon as you count one, you're late. You have to be one. And then you're right. trying to be people and they're like, how is she talking about be one? You know, interesting notion. You do have to be one, right? Because <laughs> it is all one. 
It is. So what I was going to say also, oh, she said this really cool thing and then I thought of this thing. Okay, yes, the, these death things of the ego, like, like letting go of ideas. For me, it's like letting go of ideas that I had about myself and about who I was and about, you know, can I be this in this situation? Can I, and, and that's where dance and choreography and improvisation um, gave me this fluidity to understand that I can be different aspects of myself. And, and as I, uh, I would say, outgrew my Midwestern, uh, it, it's like a shell that, that I feel like I got as a kid, that it was. Kind of Midwestern uh, mindset. It was an exoskeleton that was designed yeah. to keep me safe. But as I have let that fall off and then it, and I always have this image of the, um, I don't know, there's this cartoon character who has these big blocks on himself, rocks, you know, and they just fall off. Right. And, <laughs> and, but, but those things are part of something, right? But wait, you know, that, that was my, my grandma taught me that. Well, she taught me that I have it. I don't have to wear it and hold on to it. It's just an aspect. And if I need it, I can grab it. Mm -hmm. That I need it. I, it's not eliminated from sure. my fear of possibility. Oh, I, I like the term. There's no carry on on this flight, <laughs> right? No baggage. Um, how did you, you know, in this understanding of life beyond death? Let's say uh, because that constriction does feel like having to move through it when you're letting go in order to allow yourself to perform at those kinds of levels. What are the essentials, I guess, for lack of a better, in allowing yourself to move through that? What did you, did you experience that an actual sense of the constriction and the release? Or did you develop this understanding and, and trust in that I don't know what I can't do, I'm just going to do and see what happens? Okay, so I always had... That makes sense? Uh -huh, no, I always okay. had this intuitive knowing that was beyond me, beyond my physical me. Mm -hmm. So like the first time... I remember this after the wave, a bunch of us kids were at somebody's house and we went up the stairs, we climbed out that we had the windows where you had the hook on the screen and, the, and you push the window out and you could get on the roof. So, okay, mm -hmm. cool. we always did this, it was very fun. And, they, and it was a sloped roof and it went down pretty low and it was like their back porch or something and, and five or six of us and they all went down there and jumped off. And it, so like I'm last and I get right up to the edge and I hear this voice that says, you know, don't do this. You will break your foot. And I'm like, shut up. Shut up. I can't yeah, go yeah, yeah. The parents will know if I go down the stairs and nobody else comes down the stairs, the parents will know everybody else jumped off the roof. And then I'm going to be the fink. I can't be the fink. 
um, I can't be afraid, right? I can't be afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm never afraid of anything. That was kind of my persona after I took on all this fear that sure. I smashed down in there. And so I jump off and I land on the ground and inside my ear, I hear. And this is how I learned that when you break a bone, your bones are hollow, you hear it. You hear the bone break. Oh, yeah. Okay, now I'm embarrassed because I had clear information not to do this. Plus, I am 10 and I know that people don't jump off roofs, that this is a stupid thing to do. And so I walked yeah, I did. I, they do. Right? Yeah. Just don't think so. So, um, so I, I walked six blocks home on my little broken foot. It, it was just a metatarsal bone. It wasn't that mm -hmm. broken. And my mom was teaching. And so I didn't tell her anything until she was done teaching at 830. And then I said, you know, my foot kind of hurts. And she looked at it. It's all swelled up. And we went to the emergency room. They x-rayed. It's broken. And she's like, why did you walk home six blocks on? But I didn't get that bad. So I have a huge pain tolerance, which is okay, cool. And uh, she said, what happened? I said, well, I jumped, I jumped out of a tree at their house. Because, like, jumping out of a tree is, uh, seems smarter. Yeah, it seems a little more plausible and, and then jumping acceptable. And so, and so then I'm like, okay, well, that voice really knew something, and uh, I probably should pay attention to it. And so, so a lot of times in my life, I just knew that that was there, and I could use it, and I could draw on it. And uh, like in New York, when I lived in New York, it would tell me uh, at night when I was going home from a rehearsal or performance, I would head towards the subway and, it, you know, the hairs would stand up in the back of my neck, don't go down there. So I would go to a different entrance, a different subway entrance. I didn't question it. You know, I start down the street because it's the shortcuts, don't go down there, I turn and I go the long way. Mm -hmm. It wasn't really logical, it, but I trusted it. So I always knew that there was this thing. But it, was, it took me a long time to really trust it. And I think I was 30, close to 35. And I was in Italy with my composer friend and we were doing performances all around and it was really a fun adventure. And I got my first artistic commission for a visual art piece, I'm so excited. And uh, I had like 600 lira, which is like, you know, zero dollars or something. I mean, it wasn't very much, but it was a lot to me. Sure. And. Uh, and I had made this little red purse. It was very pretty out of fabric and it had a beautiful button on it. And we were going to have a dinner party and people were coming over and we had this little office at the front of the house in like a little parlor area. And I cleaned up the whole desk and I stacked up the books and I put my red purse on top and it looks so pretty. And the voices don't leave that there. And I'm like, it's so beautiful. You know, it's the colors of the books and the red, you know, mm -hmm. and the next morning, my purse is gone. My passport is gone. My first money from my first commission is gone. And I, I decompress. I scream. I yell. I cry. I'm furious. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's not a big deal, right? Right. And my friend's like, what is going on with you? I said, I ignored this voice again. <laughs> I ignored me. Yes. And Every time I do that, crap happens. Right. So now, do you feel I, like uh, this is something, that, and I hear this from a lot of people, that we seem to all have this mechanism built in. And we don't pay attention to it because of various reasons. Most of us aren't nurtured to, to do so. 
<clears throat> and there's a, a certain sense of it being a little too esoteric and unknowing, you know. Yeah, is the, you're hearing voices in your head. Uh, duh. Right. Are you crazy or what? Well, yeah, it's not a syndrome or, or a, a dysfunction or, or um, diagnosable, right? It's not a DSM, whatever version it is now. That's just ridiculous. That's a very clinical, subjective, book-driven, um, insensitive view of the natural aspects of who we are and how we are in the world when we allow ourselves to become fully present and connect. I mean, now we're seeing quantum physics. Everything's energy. Well, why, you know, we're sensitive to even our bodies. We're, we're just subtle energy beings and we're affected by everything around us. This is now science. And that the old, we never really understood that we live half inside and half outside. We're too caught up with the outside and bereft of understanding of the inside. And this is where you've got some information and, and was able to process it, live with it, and learn about it use it and this uh, as you were talking about i was thinking of what matthias debat had said in his interview with tucker carlson some time back is that throughout it all really what we seek is empathic resonance there's this natural aspect of ourselves and if we don't sense it it's very taoist right desirable or undesirable those are the two aspects from which we experience the desirable moves us to things that is health or that are healthy for us, and the undesirable generally kind of protects us from whatever that could be detrimental. When we don't pay attention to it, is when we get into those kerfuffles and learning lessons, and we think that oh, this is what this is what I need to do. No, that's what you have to do now because the choice you made didn't follow the empathic resonance path. That's right. yeah. Well, and this thing, I think this is a layer, right? Sure. Like they, like they used to, when I was growing up, they said we had five senses. And mm -hmm. now they, they give people seven or something. They're, they keep adding, science keeps adding senses to oh, I said we could have 45. You know, if you do the ratio, uh, five senses, 10% of the brain, do the ratio, you got 45 more with the other 90% of the brain. Where are they? Are they other... Are they finer aspects of those five? Because we don't, you know, we perceive them okay. in different ways. Okay. Now, this is too funny. Last night, I watched this thing about tinnitus. And uh, the guy's theory is that we learn to censor out what we think is not important. Mm -hmm. Whether it's hearing, you know, he said, he said, like, starting at the time you're a baby and your parents are going, oh, you're so cute. You la, 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 say ma, 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 say da, da, da. And but at the same time, the baby's hearing its heartbeat. Um, it's probably resonating with its parents' heartbeats. It's 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 on sensory overload. I mean, it has to be. You know, you just come down here and suddenly. Is but, it on overload or is it simply acting natural? Oh, the baby probably just acting natural. This is it's its thing, and and but yeah. this guy said. The brain learns to choose what we're going to pay attention to. And, and the parents keep doing the repeated sounds. So the baby's 
said, oh, this must be more important than listening to the heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Because I, you know, because I can't do 150,000 things at one time, maybe, maybe I could. And so the thing with the tinnitus is that he said, something happens and the auditory stimulus coming in is lessened. Like let's say you went to a loud concert and everything, but the brain is used to that. And it's like, wait, I need this stimulus. So it goes and finds something in your body. And that all these things that people hear as tinnitus are, are various things going on in your body all the time. Maybe the shushing of the blood through the veins and the arteries or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and that you can change this by turning down the volume on that thing, like kind of re-educating your brain said, wait, I know you thought this was an important sound for me to pay attention to, but I'm, I'm going to say like, no, I, I want to pay more attention to these other sounds. Well, what about the flip side? I, I get where you're going with this and I understand how we do that and, and agree. A lot of times we do. However, what about the flip side? What about paying attention to that more or, or inquiring more about, you know, the going into that place of silence and listening, right? Whether it's meditation or, or just moving to a, a place where things are quiet inside. I've had, since a kid, varying tones in both ears and realized over time, this is something else going on because in the frequencies and i had knew nothing about quantum physics or frequencies or any of those kinds of solfeggio tones for instance and the various levels of frequency and and the data that it actually carries right these are things that are way beyond the body and yet we still focus on the body and and forget that there's the non-linear mind there's the non-local mind and then there's the nothingness that we have no clue about yet from which all of it comes. Right. And so, again, I think it's not, I'm going to go with it's not what, it's how. Mm. And so if you investigate those sounds with curiosity, I wonder what this is trying to tell me. Do I, do I need to? You know, is it, is it a message? Is it a, I need to have less caffeine. I need to have more water. I need, you know, but what is, you know, right. maybe what are these frequencies? When I listen to these frequencies, how do I feel? Does this lift me up? You know, as opposed to going, well, this, this sound in my ear, this is wrong. This is bad. This is scary. This is a sign that something is wrong. That's, that's how I looked at it. Mm. And the thing you had said before, the, uh, the do and the don't or the good and the bad or right. the again these are two sides of one coin i can use either side to come back to myself mm-hmm. i can notice that i have a great affinity for this good thing whoops i'm out i went out i'm gone i went towards the good thing can i come back to myself and say i really like this thing I really like this good thing better than I like this other thing. Can I just be centered and neutral and know I have a preference, but not go to my preference automatically? Now, if I choose to go there, that's a different thing. It's a whole different thing for me. Same thing, the thing I don't like. 
well, I don't have to grab it, throw it in a box and bury it in the basement. Right. I can just say, wow, I really don't like that. It's my face mess up. Oh, that's not easy. What happened to me? Why did I have that so total reaction? Can I, can I, can I notice that and come back again, come back mm -hmm. that I'm in that place. Observe and report. Observe and report. Yes. It's more like an experiment. What happens when I think about that thing I don't like? Oh, do I want to have that reaction or do I just want to know that I don't like that? Thing? Right. And that, that's perfectly fine. Like do my you find that the critical thinking development is that we're, we haven't paid attention to that enough. And now I was reading an article today that um, there's this concern. And actually, a kid wrote an app to determine how a, whether AI was writing term papers or not. That's how advanced that it's gotten, right? So is this, new, are, are the new developments of AI and, and these kinds of things that kind of take away our need for critical thinking and ability to communicate? Or is it giving us the opportunity to not be obsessed by having to communicate in that way and opens up another door to, you know, because the, these, these things are like, is it good or bad? We, we, we really don't know yet because it's just beginning to happen. Well, here's what I say about most everything. It's a hammer. The hammer is neutral. It's the hand that wields the hammer that determines if it builds a house or hurts another human. Mm -hmm. It's not the hammer. You know, the hammer doesn't just jump up and slam me on the toe by itself. You know, if I pick up the hammer, I'm not paying attention and I drop it, it certainly could land on my toe. But that was me. I wasn't paying attention. And now, what is paying attention? And and I did frown. Did you, I probably don't know if you saw me. Frown I did. On the chat, that the chat's not real. <laughs> I, I, it's. I think that you can. I, I, again, how how can this tool be of use in a ben? You know, how can I use it beneficially? I mean, seriously, the world does not need any more one hundred and one articles about anything. I believe that there are enough one hundred and one articles already in existence. Well, that was a judgment, wasn't it? Mm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> nice catch. Yes. Well, see, this is how I spend my life. Oh, whoops, I went down the rabbit hole. Well, right okay, so there's a perfect example of observance and reporting, right? You did something, you were so highly self-aware that when you did, it was like, hmm, that didn't quite feel right. And you paid attention to that slight disconnect yeah and and ask why and this is a it's an internal process that once you begin doing it it just becomes so natural you don't even think about it you just report you observe and report and observe and now there's this other side of it too that from the point of awareness that you are the awareness that you have actually begins to develop the reality around you because of what you're paying attention to, intending to experience, and then interacting the how toward it. Most of the time, and I'm I'm looking at, and when I work with people and I try to teach them, I'm I'm just saying, 
what are your choices? Did you, did you react without thinking? And is that what you meant to do? You can always do that. You can always make that choice. Mm -hmm. If that wasn't what you meant to do, when did the reaction happen? So like for me, just the words chat GPT. I have, I have a whole, now you're going to laugh. I'm not going to go. So my rubber ah. band. Yeah. I have a whole cluster of thoughts about the chat GTP. <laughs> <laughs> and so just that thing, I can, I can think, oh man, I, I frown. Let me take off. Let me take off one rubber band. I don't have to frown when I think about that thing. I know I have, I, it's good if I remember that I frown and I think about it. And then each time I just pull off another rubber band and I think, oh, that's an assumption I had. I didn't realize I had that assumption. And well, do you find moving in or, or, or through that for me, it, there's joy on the other side of that. There's some joy. It's like, oh, wow. And now it, is that an ego being proud of yourself because you caught something or was it just that? I think it's lightness. Right? lightness. Yeah. What is it? The incredible that. lightness of being? And you let it go. There's more space mm -hmm. for energy to move. And so for me, that energy moving is, is the dance of life. And, and so how do we notice? Well, we, ah, I have an agenda here. I have an expectation there. These, and see, even when I make the agenda and the expectation, I move forward out of my alignment. Right. And that's okay. I don't have to be mad at myself. I don't have to judge myself for doing that. I say, thank you. Thank you. Especially to my body. You gave me this signal. Oh, I got so excited to talk to Zan that I'm like, ah. <laughs> sure. And wait, can I be, oh, yeah. I can be right here and be, yeah. See, and now you felt my excitement authentically. And, yeah. and then you, mirrored it back to me and I felt that energy and that now, why are we seemingly less or reticent to share these kinds of things or are we still thinking oh my god if you knew what was on my mind you would really freak out because you think I would I was nuts right because I'm obsessing on all this stuff and, and that's one aspect of it then I as which is what I found early on when I was talking to people it was like I you know so and it got so far as being institutionalized because of it, right? Slightly different stuff that was going on inside of me, yet it was very real and present. And now it's been acknowledged by others that these kinds of things happen. And the, the thing that I talked about was in institutionalized for in 1976, in 2010, I spoke at an IN's an International Association for Near-Death Studies annual conference about. So it was a complete flip. Now, how many other things do we experience like that, that it takes years for us to move beyond because of how we navigate through our lives of maybe being a little too fully disclosing or not enough. Right, right. Okay, again, again, okay, so all the time. All the Loaded time, question. Uh, no, no, I come back to 
what happens to the sense of ease and balance in myself when I think about disclosing this fact or I think about withholding this fact or piece of information or what I saw. Mm -hmm. So when I'm taking yourself out of the moment because you're thinking, you're analyzing your left brain rather than I'm thinking I'm noticing, right? I'm noticing that, like the body, for me, the body is the barometer. Well, and we're talking about decisions that that happen at the speed of thought, which I've heard is 841 trillion miles per second, by the way. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) So, so yes, we can be distracted in an instant. And, and depending on how quickly we realize that before we come back. Mm -hmm. So, so a lot of times I say, who am I disclosing to? Why am I disclosing? And by the why, I mean, am I hoping for a specific event or outcome by disclosing? Well, it's, but, uh, acceptance, acknowledgement, or feeling safe. Is that those right. are the... Or sometimes, sometimes yeah. we disclose in order to uh, knock something down. Hmm to destroy something, to hurt somebody. Why, why, why are, where, where? Words can always be a two-edged sword. Where, where is this coming from? So that, so I take a little moment, I, I just pause. And this is a mental, arbitrary choice. When I start to feel excited and going somewhere, um, I, I take a moment and say, come back, make a decision. Am I going to go that way or not? If I go, if I choose, then I pay, then I pay the price. So it's just very. Okay. I can keep myself. I can and not keep myself because you can't keep yourself because we breathe in and out and we go into flow and out of flow all the time, but mm-hmm. I can speed up the process of coming back to flow in my brain and my body and it's through your ability to just release not be attached not follow that those psychic cords that are going out and attaching themselves to the people place and things around you that you might or might not be concerned about right right Um, had a great book that he wrote i think it was called the eagle's gift and it talked about sealing the egg and all of these psychic cords that you're you've attached to everything in your life that you're not aware of, right? Until you start that inner journey of figuring out, okay, what am I attached to, and how can I find freedom from it? Right. Because you don't need to be attached to anything. Yeah. To places, um, all kinds of stuff like that. Places or people or even historical events. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we can be stuck to in a way. And so the ability to, I think observe, like you said, observe, observe with awareness. You know, I mean, I could just as easily have uh, set up that, that those events in my childhood as terrible things that, you know, that the fact that my dad fell, the whole mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. And, or I can say, well, this is what happened. 
and in the as a kid i i did go nearsighted i mean like like uh i was like nine nine and a half about six months after that my mom was driving and i'm going to my grandma's house and i'm like how do you know where to turn she's like i look at the street signs i said you mean those green things she's like tell me when you can see the letters on those signs there's letters on there i thought there's letters on there and then we get like about Mm -hmm. five or six feet and then i can see the letters i mean i was profoundly nearsighted well after a time after i got back to listening to my voice i realized that i had just brought everything in because i didn't want the far sight because i was afraid of what sure. the and it's great. That's a wonderful acknowledgement of how you created that for you as a result. And, and I think that's one thing. We all do this. We all create dis-ease in our bodies because of what we think and how, not, not just what, how we take those thoughts and ingest them. And, and it's mobile. And as also from talking to you, every, what I want, everything is malleable. Mm. Our point of view is malleable. You know, you're talking about, well, I, I have to die to this to be born to that. Um, that's malleable. Mm -hmm. That's transformation. Let go. I mean, like for my voice to become its own self, it's, it's authentic voice. I had, I had to, I did, I started to let go of those pieces of fear that I had absorbed. And as they went away, my body relaxed a little more, my uh, interest in perfectionism. Is, I mean, there's so much value to perfection. Well, the perfectionism became applicable in certain areas as opposed to distracting. Or, or um, instead of a blanket application. Right. Like in this, you know, like, like if I'm sewing, this this stitch needs to go right here that's it that's where it needs to be but it doesn't have to be it has to be here or else which was the old <laughs> <laughs> you, you remember that yeah. from the midwest don't you oh, oh yeah 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 now speaking of the or else we're kind of getting the close to our time and, and oh my gosh we this has just been amazing laura and, and i so appreciate the ability to just kind of dive in float around and see where things take us and, and have relevant conversation that is apocalyptic in some ways for us and others and we all you know the insights that we gain i saw i saw your eyes a few times going like oh i never thought about that yeah 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 and i'm oh, sure you saw mine right and, and that's the joy of having conversations that matter and being able to share them and, and hopefully they'll benefit the audience. I, I believe that people can see themselves in us in some degree and, and then help to advance their own lives as a result because they don't have to go through the kerfuffles that we may have. <laughs> or they, um, they say, oh, I didn't even realize that was a kerfuffle that I have been carrying around like a boulder. Right. And they have the encouragement to start to unravel it or like their rubber band ball to start feeling a little piece of rubber band off here and a little piece of rubber band off there. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's a beautiful journey. I don't, uh, I can tell you, it's not always comfortable, but. Oh, absolutely not. What, what kind of advice or what did you find in a simple, concise 
manner that worked for you to be able to move through things on on a day on a more successfully on a daily basis or a moment to moment basis as the case may be how what kind of advice can you give to others to do so the the thing that helped me the most was was that i decided that the most important thing was not whether i did something right or avoiding making a mistake but to observe to fine tune my awareness of when i started to react because the the reactions for me are habitual and they come from history not the moment mm-hmm. they come from a, or history depending yes and uh, and so when i when i say it's more important for me to uh to know that when I want to say this important thing, you ask for a final sum up and I want to get it right. Oh, I went away. That's more important than that I get it right. How my voice changed when I came back, then I know I'm on the right track. And so I say, pay attention, learn in your system, mental, physical, digestive, when is it giving you messages that you're coming out of alignment? Because our body doesn't really have a separate agenda from our growth and development. That's its purpose is to carry us through the adventures mm-hmm. that will take us. It's part of our holistic system. And we are a holistic system designed to nurture self. And it's and it's a journey to becoming mm-hmm. our our whole self, like you said. It's a journey mm-hmm. to becoming our whole self. And so the body is not the enemy. The body is a friend, a guide. Like I say, it's a barometer. It it notes right away. You know, hair stand up when this is a bad situation, whether it's bad because of memory or bad because it's bad in the present. Ah, I have a I have a moment, and I can. Think faster right. than light to make the correct decision in that time. So, be finding awareness and have fun. Oh yeah, have fun. <laughs> That's kind of the whole idea, right? Enjoy life, have fun with it. If you're not having fun with what you're doing, then it's probably not in your empathic resonance field, right? um change find something ask for help you know admit that hey i don't know what the heck i'm doing here somebody please help and just even hold that as a a question of thought a, a request a call if you will internally and it will be met externally in some way shape or form and sometimes it'll be really simple sometimes it'll just blow your mind absolutely totally and thank you so much for your time and your joyous conversation and your sparking ideas. It's just been delightful. Oh, thank you. It's just, I, I, I gotta be me. I gotta be me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> thanks again, Laura. And namaste. And in La Catch, thanks for sticking with us for this episode of One World in a New World. I'm Zen Benefiel, your host. 
and I will see you next time.